Dove Men Plus Care. Only on 2FM. Sponsored by Dove Men Plus Care. Upgrade to Dove Men Advanced Deodorant and Body Wash. Let the confidence last. Game on. Weeknights from 6. On 2FM. Well, a big thanks to the two Johnnies and Afric for the Monday Afternoon Entertainment. It is February 12th. I'm Shane Dawson and you're listening to Game On. Coming up between now and 7pm, Eno Reardon pays tribute to the legendary Kenyan runner Kelvin Kiptum after his tragic passing on Sunday. Alan Collier is standing by to review all of the weekend's football actions. Stephen Ferris reflects on Six Nations drama as Ireland's consecutive Grand Slam dream remains intact. Niall Moran chats hurling after an action-packed second round of National League action. And Brian O'Leary of the Irish NFL show joins us to discuss how the Chiefs claim the Super Bowl. As always, if you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552, WhatsApp 087-187-9200 or we're on X at GameOn. 2FM Game On on 2FM Good evening, welcome along to Game On Alan Collian is here Happy Monday to you Alan, how are you sir? I'm good Shane, yourself? I'm very well, I'm very well How was your weekend? What was your sporting highlight Alan? Yeah, my sporting highlight is actually dating right back to Friday Friday evening Start of the weekend, that's allowed Yeah, Yeah, yeah. um, because I left here after spending a lovely hour with yourself and headed up to the President's Cup which obviously I was excited by because everybody knows how excited we are for the league starting this Friday so that was the curtain raiser Shane and the fact that there was 8,000 people at the game was brilliant in itself Mm. because we all know in terms of the hype and the excitement and, and certainly um, the League of Ireland is on an upward trajectory at the moment which yep. is great to see so to have 8,000 at the curtain raiser was was brilliant and then the game itself I thought it was a decent game um, obviously teams don't want to show their hand too much but St. Pat's mm. certainly showed theirs they had probably their strongest team out Shamrock Rovers were keeping plenty in reserve and when I say plenty in reserve Shane <laughs> there was Rolls Royces and everything they had in reserve because Jack Byrne was in the stand Graham Burke Aaron McAniff Richie Towell Pico Lopez who was just back from the African Cup of Nations um, but scary. on the pitch they still had absolutely serious yeah. quality and um, young Noonan as well young Shining. Noonan who obviously people wouldn't really be f- too familiar with uh, anybody in around the league would be but mm. um, he played actually he played the last league game we covered down after it had won the league Stephen Bradley made a lot of changes for a game down in Cork towards the end of the season I think it was the second last game of the season and he played that night and played very well but he started the other night and he was the star of the show he was excellent the only concern for that young lad who, who in my view is a serious, serious talent. Yeah. When I've just named out all the others that I've just said, and Gary yeah. O'Neill and uh, Marcus Poom as yeah. well, where is the young fella going to fit in? Because Stephen Bradley was quite bullish after the match about the fact that this young kid is ready to play based on, obviously, his performance, but also what he's seeing day in, day out at the training ground. And sometimes when there's a kid like that, uh, so young, you have to let him off the leash, Shane. You can't yeah. hold him back any longer. So it'll be interesting to see come the league games, will he feature? Uh, but as I said, I was I was quite bullish with you before the match about the chances of Shamrock Rovers in terms of the league itself. And as I said to you Friday, I didn't really... I'm always weary of making too bold a prediction yeah. and being too bullish about it so early on in the season. But the I'm even more bullish. Yeah. <laughs> I'm even more bullish point. now, Shane. <laughs> Honestly, I was, they, they played so well with half a team. Yeah. Then he brings on five or six of the regular household names if you like Gaffney uh, Dylan Watts Trevor Clark Gary O'Neill they made a huge difference yeah. and then all the ones I've named out that, that are in the stands sort of assembled a really really strong squad one of the other new signings that actually played and started and scored played really well Josh Honahan as well mm. and he'll probably come under the radar in terms of Dara Burns and McAniff but he was outstanding yeah. so 
I'm bit just of bite about him as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I'm just wondering. Like, obviously, you don't want a team running away with the league. We don't want to see that in any division. But the golf, to me, is getting bigger and bigger. Shin and looking at them Friday night, you'd want to be a good team to even try and stop them. Mm. Now, let alone overtake them. Well. Wait until you see the performance in the RSC this Friday. <laughs> From Waterford. <laughs> I always rate Pete Long. <laughs> Listen, Alan, you're sticking around. Uh, we will be chatting football in due course, uh, but lots to get through uh, this evening. Uh, let us actually start with swimming news. Mona McSharry finished uh, second in her semi-final heat with a time of 1 minute uh, 6.11 seconds, just outside her Irish record of 105.55. McSharry was second fastest overall and is safely true to tomorrow's uh, 100 metre breaststroke final at the World Championships in Doha. Yeah, I'm really happy, you know, progressing it on from the morning, which was my main goal for here. So excited to see what I can do tomorrow. I have a good lane, so just race. Uh, there's, there's what, just one swimmer ahead of you, Chinese girl. You've done the 105 before. You're progressing through the rounds here, getting faster as well. That's the aim, isn't it? Yeah, I think I've set myself up in a good position, you know, like I want to do in the summer. And then you just get to the final and you race what's in the pool next to you. So it's going to be really good practice just to try and get my hands on the wall first. A little earlier on, Conor Ferguson clocked uh, 53.90 seconds to finish a world 13th in his 100 metre Backstroke semi-final, Ferguson set a new PB with that time. And this morning, Maria Godden uh, swam her first individual event, the 100 metre breaststroke, uh, touching in 1 minute 1.99 seconds uh, for 20th overall. Game on on 2FM. Now, Eno Reardon, Athletics correspondent with the Irish Times, uh, joins us now. Because tributes have been... uh, flowing in to marathon world record breaker Kelvin Kipton who tragically passed away uh, along with his coach in a road accident uh, yesterday Kenyan member of parliament Gideon uh, Kimayo confirmed the pair's death uh, in a statement on X the 24 year old uh, had set a new marathon world record of 2 hours and 35 seconds at the uh, Chicago Marathon in October uh, last year World record, 20109. He's going to absolutely smash it, Kelvin Kipton. The new man on the block. What a talent, Kelvin Kipton. He's still got the energy to beckon to the crowd. Kelvin Kipton is going to be the new world record holder. What a race from Kelvin Kipton. History in the marathon. The first ever to break two hours and one minute in official race conditions. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Irish Times journalist Ian O'Riordan is with us. Ian, like even just saying the 24-year-old setting a new world record, um, Kelvin was in the prime of his career, he was at the top of his game, and it's just such tragic news. Yeah, good evening, Shane. He was actually only 23 when he set that record in Chicago there last October, just turned 24 in December and um, I think like a few people I was up late last night sort of waiting for the start of the Super Bowl seeing how long it could last and that's when the news first broke and social media and X and a few other things and I honestly couldn't believe it I had to kind of sort of like there's a sense of disbelief is this even true and then as you say the tribute started to come through and it was confirmed by uh, by the Kenyan government and, and it's it's just layered in tragedy I mean he was driving his car it's just not a big not a big car I think it was a small Toyota Premio from uh, from his home in Eldoret to, to Captagat a road he would have travelled many times over the over the course of his life um, now it is notoriously 
dangerous in stretches. And I spoke to an old friend down in Kenya today, and he's and he knows that stretch of road, and he says it's poorly lit, especially after dark. It can be very treacherous because there's ditches either side. So whatever happens, the car went off the road into the ditch. As you say, he was killed on the spot along with his coach. Um, um, he's only 36, and there was a, a third passenger in the car, I presume, in the back, and she she got away. She got away, I think, with minor injuries, but. Yeah, so that sense of disbelief, I mean, for, for just for an athlete cut down in his prime, but more so, I don't think he'd even realised his potential yet. I mean, he's only, since he just turned 24, he was due to run the Rotterdam Marathon now in April. And the sense, could he could he finally break that two-hour barrier in a legitimate race? And then ideally, I suppose, go into the Olympics in Paris and take on Juliet Kipchoge, who had been the, sort of the, the master of marathon running for the, for the last decade. So there was so much potential there. And look, I'm not going to tiptoe around the fact that we all know Kenya have had doping issues over the last couple of years, and a lot of Kenyan marathon runners have, have fallen the wrong side of doping. But And there will always be some questions, I suppose, but this guy could run. I mean, you only had to look at the way he ran to realise he was an exceptional talent. He was fearless. He, he went from the... He would invariably go from the gun. And I think it was in Chicago, by halfway, he'd already dropped most of the pacemakers and just, just went for it. And that was only his third marathon. I mean, it, his debut was in Valencia. That would have been, what, late? 2022 when he ran the fastest debut marathon then he won london last year in the second fastest time and then as you say that that two hours 35 seconds in chicago so if he was if he was to keep going the way he was going i've no doubt he would have broken two hours smashed two hours um over the next three or four years but sadly that 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 potential will never be realized mm. Like he was on the right trajectory for that, I'd imagine. To, to like he's the current world record holder and probably could have smashed that again and would have quite possibly been a world record holder for quite some time. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, his coach there, mentioned his coach Gervais Hikizamana. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but he he was from Rwanda. And look, he'd spoken about some of the training that that Kiptum did, and he was a pure marathon specialist. Like he he actually went straight into the marathon from very young age so I think he was maybe 13 when he ran his first half marathon I don't think he's ever run a track race of no so he was very much a marathon specialist at that age which is kind of unheard of as well and then as I say his coach talked about some of the training and how he was going up to some something crazy like I mean 100, 130 140 miles a week which which was <laughs> with that volume of training was kind of unheard of so he was pushing the barriers from both performance wise and training wise and we saw that in London as I say last year where he he ran the second fastest time, um, even though that was only his his his, his second marathon. So it's it's a real it's a real sad thing, as I say, it's layered in tragedy in the fact that he died in the spot he would have known so well, cut down in his prime. And by the way, there's echoes here of, of Sammy Wanjuri, who was a Kenyan marathon runner, won the Olympics in Beijing in nineteen sorry, two thousand and eight, I should say. Now his life started to unravel. But he also died at age 24. There was more. There was a domestic dispute accident, and he was cut down in his prime as well. And we never got to see what he what he could do. So, and I think that, that's why the tributes for Kiptum. There's, there's a real sense of the sport is lost. I mean, he, I think he transcended marathon running because people kind of knew who he was because he was just smashing records so so easily. And um, it, it's it's it really is sad for any athlete to be cut down like that. But I think that the especially given the fact that he had so much more to give, I think for the sport. Absolutely. Extremely sad news. Um, Ian, thanks so much for uh, taking the call. Ian O'Reardon there, athletics correspondent uh, with the Irish Times. Uh, we are going to take a short break. Lots to come and game on. Football, hurling, rugby. But up next, we're chatting Super Bowl with the Irish NFL show's Brian O'Leary. Game on. Eye on America. First and goal. Mahomes flings it. It's there. Hartman. Jackpot. Kansas City. 
was the Andy Reid special. This was the Andy Reid special. We talked about he was saving all day. He's going to fake a motion to go across. And at that moment, he turns and goes back Hartman, who they didn't have, right? And they go get Hartman and bring him back. And the game-winning drive of Mahomes' career, he's been waiting for. He's won Super Bowls, but he's never had it in an overtime. He is the best. He is the standard. Your Michael Jordan wins it again. Now it is time to chat Super Bowl here on Game On and I'm delighted to say we are joined by Brian O'Leary, co-host and indeed co-founder of the Irish NFL show who were some of the lucky few who attended the match itself. Just over uh, 61,000 people in the stadium, full of stars, usual hype. Brian, what was the atmosphere like? Uh, electric. Uh, this is the third Super Bowl in which we've covered. I would argue this has been the best by far. Over the course of the week, you could sense the atmosphere along the strip with the 49ers fans in particular arriving. I think it was, a, we, we suggested maybe a 70, 30% split of their fans in the stadium. A lot of other activities, we were fortunate to go to U2 on Friday night. But it's just, everybody had pumped this Super Bowl up. I would be one of the best. And it certainly was, certainly was the case. The NFL did a great job. And... I was blown away by the stage and um, it's like they call it the Black Star and it's fantastic. And, but we've been fortunate to go through a number of stadiums over here, but it just it went beyond our expectations and, and and we're fortunate that we got a great game and a great halftime show. Yeah, absolutely. I was gonna ask about like that like all the razzmatazz that goes with it and everything else off the pitch is is brilliant. So so in your expert view, did, did the contest match the occasion? Did it live up to the hype? I wouldn't say it did in the first half. It kind of reminded me a bit of football a number of years ago, which the Rams and the Patriots played, but it was nip and tuck and neither offense could get things going. And I felt as the game progressed, I felt it was there for the 49ers to win. And unfortunately, they come out the wrong side of another defeat in the Super Bowl to the Chiefs. The Chiefs, for me, never got control of the game. And it just felt like it was one that it was a battle that was an uphill battle for them. And I didn't think they were going to come out the right side of it. Even, even in overtime, and the 49ers drove down to score. And okay, they accepted a field goal. There was a lot of suggestion in the stadium that they were going to, that Carl Shannon was considering going from fourth down to kind of get that touchdown to really put the pressure on the Chiefs. But yet again, Mahomes and, and Andy Reid find a way to navigate a victory when it looks like it's going to be a loss and they haven't played well. I mean, they haven't had the best of seasons at their, at their standards, but yet they couldn't come on strong in the playoffs. Second half in particular, it was a lot more enjoyable in the first half. And then sometimes you have to recognise the sense of the occasions. And, you know, you're not always going to get the spectacle in which you want. For the purists who loves the NFL, I think I think it will, will upon reflection in a couple of months, you know, reflect on a really good subject. Yeah, and, and, and for those purists that, I suppose, study every minute detail, was it a case of of Reed outmaneuvering, outnumbering Shanahan in terms of the head coaches? Uh, I would probably put more so on, on the defensive corner of the Chiefs. Steve Spagnolo, he's really come to the fore in the playoffs in terms of how defense is played. And you could argue that the, the Chiefs defense kept him in the game for, for so long. Andy Reid was quick to call him. He normally has that, that piece after the game where he says, how about those Chiefs? But he actually said, how about that? How about our D? And in particular, he called out Steve Spagnuolo and some of the marquee players on defense. It was very much defense again being recognized. Like, they were so used to Mahomes and the capacity play and the offense for Kelsey and very stiff and other players. But this season, it's been a kind of a change, change in the guard. It's the defense that's kind of led the way in terms of getting them over the line in, in particular in some of the playoff games. So I would say it was more defense in terms of the coordinator, defense coordinator. Steve Spagnuolo and what he's doing there was even a piece that came out 
late last night here that he's going to put some wrinkles in at halftime in terms of some of the defensive plays that he wants in the second half that hadn't been used in any game over the course of the season. So for him to scheme up different things at halftime to adjust to the way the 49ers were playing. But again, shines a light on him as arguably being one of the best defensive minded coaches in the league. Given the fact that this is the Chiefs, what, third Super Bowl in, in the past five seasons, and you're kind of mentioning it's not just the well-known guys as such, it's, it's these defensive coordinators, it's everything else that kind of goes into it. Does this really just show how well-rounded the Chiefs are in terms of the, the legacy that they're creating, that it is across the board, just the, the depth of talent that they have. Absolutely. And I think once Patrick Holmes and Kelsey get all the kind of exposure to, to media and, and everything that comes with the off the field stuff with Taylor Swift, I think the team has evolved over the course of the last 12 months into a really well-rounded team that recognise it's not just about the quarterback, it's not just about the marquee tight ends. And just see it the check on the running back is being one of the marquee players for them. But yeah, I certainly agree with that point that they've kind of, you know, you, you see this in, in I'm not, we're saying the word dynasty now because it is kind of starting to kind of compare to the, the Patriots of seven or six years ago when they were running running it back every year in terms of going back to the Super Bowl. Like we're now, was, they've done it now back to back. Let's not forget they had an opportunity to go back to back a couple of years ago, having won the, the game against the 49ers in Miami and then returned to the Super Bowl the following year, lost to the Bucks. In fact, I said on our show on Saturday, the live show, which we did at the stadium, in some ways losing that Super Bowl a couple of years ago, which was the COVID Super Bowl, has kind of helped them because they kind of recognized how, what it feels like to lose a Super Bowl and then be away from, you know, having six months off such a long off season in the NFL that they'd have to lick their wounds. And now they've come back and like it's starting to feel like a bit of a dynasty like, but every NFL year is very different like, they've got some players this offseason that are free agents so it'll be interesting to see how they manage the cap in terms of trying to maintain those players on the roster some of those players may move off and then they have, they have to go again but that's again down to a really good structure in which the Chiefs have built that they find ways to you know every year identify players that can come in who have the hunger and desire that may not have won a Super Bowl yet and they fit into the scheme they fit into what they want to do the owner after the game the home family said they made it very clear that Andy Reid is not, not going anywhere. He will remain as head coach. Last year, when we were here, there was a lot more talk about Andy Reid potentially retiring. We made it very clear at the press conference last year, which we tell him he wasn't planning to do that. Less this year, but I think it's, it's good city owners immediately clearing that up. Let's start, let's start at, the, at the forefront of who runs it, and that's Andy Reid. And if Andy Reid remains in place, you know, it's hard to argue that they won't be back. You know, in this position next year, certainly challenging to be in the Super Bowl. I know Mahomes labelled uh, Andy Reid the greatest coach this game has ever seen um, after the match. Would you agree with those those sentiments? Right now, it feels like it's hard to argue. And we're kind of seeing a new a new age in the NFL, and with the fact that Bill Belichick is now one of the essentially having you know left the Patriots over the course of the last month and interviewed for a different number of jobs. Sorry, interviewed for the Falcons job, didn't get that. So it certainly feels like there's a, a good opportunity for Andy Reid to continue, I suppose, the momentum of trying to win Super Bowls. Uh, Mahomes has some on Monday at the opening night in the stadium, he suggested that he wants to play till he's in his 40s. And it was very clear, and Evan, you know, once he wasn't calling it out, I think he's trying to run Brady down. Obviously, Brady's got six rings. Mahomes is now a three at a very young age. It's hard to argue that he won't match it at some stage. I mean, it could be looking at something over the course of the next 10 years where we just have to get used to a Chiefs team being quite dominant. And I certainly think. Right now, I wouldn't suggest he's the best head coach ever, but it's what's he's getting got opportunities when it's trending in that direction. If they continue to come back and win Super Bowls, we could be looking at that situation and revisiting that conversation in a couple of years and saying, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's mad to think that Mahomes is only 28 as well. Listen, Brian O'Leary, co-host and co-founder of the Irish NFL Show, thanks so much for joining us and a very safe trip home. Game on. Eye on America. Game on. Rugby.
Now, Ireland scored six tries as they demolished a poor Italy side at the Viva Stadium to stay on course for a grand slam. It was a case of job done for Andy Farrell's men over the weekend, but it was far from perfect as they recorded a record 10th straight championship victory. Joining us now is former Ireland uh, international Stephen Ferris to look back on a... Uh, a big victory, but far from a perfect performance. However, Stephen, I feel Ireland didn't hit top gear, but if they needed to, they could have. Ah, yeah, I think so, Shane. Um, first of all, an impressive victory nonetheless. Scoring a, a lot of points and not conceding a single point was, you know, I'm sure that's what Andy Farrell was most pleased about. Um, Italy never really fired a shot, did they? They were really mm. disappointing. I think after the, the game against England, a lot of people thought that they might have come to Dublin with a, a little bit more enterprise and you know maybe had a few more line breaks, but Ireland snuffed absolutely everything out. The kicking game was fantastic. Once again, from James Lowe, relieving lots of pressure. Um, Jack Hurley, who was immense also, uh, controlled the game very, very well. So I'm sure everybody was delighted with with the, the performance. And as you rightly said there, if they needed to go up a couple of gears, it felt like they could do so. Absolutely. Um so far, so good for Ireland uh, in this Six Nations campaign. Um, when we were previewing um, the match here on, on Game On, Stephen, it was kind of a case of a couple of guys coming in. This was their, possibly their only chance to impress. So first half tries, Jack Crowley, Dan Sheehan, Jack Conan, um, player of the match, James Lowe, touchdown, as did uh, Calvin Nash uh, in the second half as well to, to complete the route. So I suppose who caught your eye? Who really put their hand up for selection and, and who's causing the most selection headaches for Andy Farrell ahead of the Wales game? Oh, well, I think it's always in the back row for me. Like, um, the, the, the back line is so solid, especially if Ringrose is to come back in again. Um, I think he probably would slip straight back in. But in saying that, uh, you know, Bundy's probably the first name on the team sheet after the Rugby World Cup that he had and the game he had against France. Um, and, yeah, I, I'd probably say that um, in the back row, you have Ryan Baird, who anytime he touches the ball, he seems to get the crowd on their feet. He runs with such intent. Um, you know, he's a, f- a physical player, very athletic. Made a couple of great line breaks. Um, <clears throat> it's just whether or not in the bigger games against bigger opposition, when you're not going to have that time and space on the ball, will he? You know, will he be as effective? Um, well, he probably needs those opportunities to be able to answer that question. But mm. I thought Jack Conan was immense in the back row. He was really, really strong. Anytime he touched the ball, he seemed to make. You know, a half yard, a yard, just getting across the game line, made the right, you know, really good decisions during the game. Um, and, you know, that's the problems that Andy Farrell wants to have. He brought James Ryan off on 60 minutes, gave Ian Henderson 20 minutes. Um, you know, it's a good thing for James Ryan. He played half decent also. Um, so, yeah, there wasn't anybody. And this is something, Shane, that you can say about the Ireland team over the last, for the last couple of years. Nobody has a bad game. Like, you know, if, if you have a 7 out of 10 game now playing for Ireland, you're, you're sort of worried about your selection for the, for the following week because you know, the standard has just been so, so high. So um, I'm not sure if that's down to the other teams not playing particularly well either, Shane, but hopefully they're up against, uh, you know, bigger tasks over the next four or five weeks before... We hopefully lift a grand slam. <laughs> am, I getting ahead of, am I getting ahead of myself? Am I? A consecutive grand slam as well, which is yeah, it's it's wild, wild thoughts already. Um, like well, in terms of lifting the game, like what caught your eye in terms of of the game plan, and and also what improvements, like if any, uh, kind of what areas would you be focusing on, um, from what you we've seen, not only in the Italy match but but the France match as well. 
Um, like you go right across the board and look at absolutely everything and nitpick the whole performance and say, oh, this wasn't quite right, or you know, you overran your line here, or you know, the accuracy at the breakdown wasn't quite there. I think all in all, it was the energy. It just felt like. You know, even speaking to people um, who were watching the game on TV, were saying, "Oh, like after half an hour, just flicked it over because, you know, Ireland just looked like they were going through the motions at times, and there mm-hmm. wasn't really the same intensity." And I was like, "Right, okay, but again, it's just down to what you know. When you find yourself nineteen nil up after you know, twenty minutes or whatever it was, then you know, it's 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 fine. It's okay to you know take your feet off the gas. It's okay to maybe make one or two more mistakes than you usually would if the pressure was on." But yeah, I I think it, it would be wrong of me to go through a, an Irish performance of winning thirty um, with thirty six points to nil at home and start trying to pull yeah. it apart and say <laughs> you know the, the, this is this is a, a glaringly obvious um, area that Ireland need to improve on because I think right across the board it is all very solid um, and getting into last week's game against uh, France you know the line out was a a big talking point but that's been rectified really really well and um, you know hopefully we can keep going with that. Yeah, we're in good stead to to say the least. Um, Kaelin Doris, what did you make of him as captain? And is there a, a world where he remains as captain now, and Peter Armani doesn't doesn't get his place back in the team? Ah, uh, good question. Um, again, the other back rows played superb. Mm. I think um, Jack Conan and Ryan Baird they do give you a little bit extra, don't they, with ball in hand uh, over Pete? But then, if, you know, Pete's uh, line out ability, his leadership. Um, his experience, you know, it, it's it's not just about how good you are carrying the, carrying a rugby ball, um, and yeah, well, we'll see how, how that goes. And we know we picked up an, an injury against France or in the week after, shortly after. So, um, I'm not really sure. I suppose it depends if he is fit. If he's fit, I firmly believe that he will retain his place uh, on the on the blind side, um, and he will captain Ireland in, in the next fixture. Mm. And if he's not, then Keelan Doris has shown that. He, he can step into those boots of Pete's and, and, and do a great job. And, um, you know, I think he led by example, not just by probably his team talk and the way he, he uh, controlled himself and managed himself towards the referee and, and with the other lads, but he, you know, he leads by his actions on the pitch, which all the other guys follow also. So, no, Keelan Doris was, a, a, again, a, a menace all day long for the Italians and he's in really good form at the minute. Absolutely. Well, Pete is expected to uh, train later this week, uh, as is uh, Bundyaki, Gary Ring, Rosenteig, Furlong, uh, and all should be available for the the Wales match. So plenty of selection calls um, for Andy Farrell to make. Um, I want to ask with Stuart McCluskey uh, what you made of his performance. And also, um, there were some very honest words uh, about kind of getting over setbacks in the early stages of, of his international career. And he was kind of, he was, it was extremely honest about kind of when he was a bit younger, it takes a while to get over your own ego. And, and perhaps he didn't see eye to eye with certain managers and he's been given a chance obviously against Italy. And um, he's had to bide his time as well, considering the the strength and depth uh, at centre and perhaps he can only play first centre or maybe second centre. He's not as versatile as, as other players and, that always doesn't work in your favour with Kieran Frawley being a prime example but like when you were playing Stephen can you remember any one-on-one chats that, that really hit home with, with managers either internationally or or even at provincial level because he was mentioning about Andy kind of having a quiet word with both himself and Robbie ahead of the Italy match Um, I suppose just look at the, the coaches that I, I probably had Um, there was you know there was numerous conversations had but it was always about why you weren't getting selected like so, you know, it was always you never wanted to knock on the door. Um, 
today or a couple of days before when the you know the team was about to be announced you never wanted that knock on the door or that text message to come for a meeting like you know that was you knew you were either being put on the bench or being completely left out and um thankfully it, it didn't happen that often but when it did you know sometimes you got you were angry sometimes you couldn't understand it especially if you had a, a particularly good game um uh, even in the early days of you know 2005 2006 2007 um, when you first come into a squad and you have to sort of find your feet a little bit and there's guys like Simon Easterby who was ahead of me um, you know Dennis Leamy uh, Neil Best um, a couple of other guys as well who you know obviously you back yourself all the time when you're, when you're a young guy but I just couldn't get my head around why you know I wasn't getting selected ahead of guys who were nearly at the end of their career and I mean, I remember having the chat with uh, with Eddie O'Sullivan, and he said, "Look, Steve, I've just put put my faith into these guys for the last year or two, leading into the Rugby World Cup, and, and I have to stick by the decision that I, I sort of backed myself into a corner, you know, a year ago mm-hmm. on this." And I was like, "Well, you know, I really appreciate you kind of being honest with me." And instead of filling my head full of, you know, magic and saying, oh, well, you know, just keep putting the head down, keep working hard. You never know what's around the corner. Like we've all been given that spiel and, and no matter if it's sport or business that you work in. And um, yeah, I, I, that, that was a conversation that I had with Eki. And he was like, look, if somebody does pull up, you, you will be in. But, you know, I'm just giving you a heads up that I've, I've made a decision to stick with this team. I've put all my time and effort and faith into this team. They have delivered in the past and, just at this moment in time, they didn't. And, you know, unfortunately for me and the, the the wider squad at that 2007 Rugby World Cup, you know, they didn't deliver. And, you know, we, we get bowled out pretty quickly. Um, and, yeah, that's, you know, I just wish um, I had been given an opportunity at that stage. But it's that stood me in good stead then for, you know, to, to really relish the opportunities when they came along in the, in the forthcoming seasons. That's really interesting, actually, and I suppose I appreciate your honesty as, as well as the manager's honesty in, in, in that regard. Um, listen, Stephen, just before I do let you go, uh, elsewhere, England uh, defeated Wales 16-14. England, two wins from two. Wales, no wins uh, from two. Two defeats as they come to the Viva Stadium in two weeks' time. But, however, final question. Scotland, I'm sure Scottish fans are still waking up with TMO nightmares. Where do you stand on the uh, controversial decision at the end? Yeah, well, I love to wind the Scottish up uh, as often <laughs> as I can, but um, I do feel sorry for them. I absolutely feel sorry for them. Um, sitting in the studio, uh, uh, working the, I was working the, the England Wales game, so we were able to watch the, the Scotland game previous to that, and um, you could clearly see that the ball had been grounded, but it did go on to a boot initially, and then you know there was a couple of arms in there, and then. Like the still frame come up that the ball was on the grass, but it did it look like it was on the grass, and it was just an absolute minefield. And unfortunately for Nick Berry at the time, you know he said that it it was held up, mm-hmm. and if he had given the try and said, "Is there any reason why you know, I can't award this try?" The try would have been given all day long. Um, so yeah, unfortunately for Scotland, you sort of get the rub of the green. And uh, I read a few things online. You know there was a. I think France made a, a massive line break and they were uh, held up like a yard before the line and, and the next thing um, uh, Luca, the scrum half picked the ball up and popped it up and it was a walk-in in the corner and Van der Merwe um, intercepted it and went about 50 or 60 metres and he was a, he was at least a yard and a half offside and you know the, just small things that you feel like go they go against you well that actually went 
you know, for them. And that could easily have been a five-pointer for France or seven-pointer if they'd have knocked over the conversion um, if they get in in the corner. So, look, you ride your luck, don't you? You yeah. take your opportunities most of the time when they come. But unfortunately for Scotland, they just didn't do enough in the previous 80, 79 and a half minutes to, get the, the, to win the game. They were the better side on the day but we all know that sometimes that doesn't get you the results so just lastly you know I just feel that the, the, the Six Nations the skill the intensity um, the teams that are in it apart from Ireland it just just feels like it's way off it just feels like there's something just not right and maybe it's just a hangover after the Rugby World Cup that everybody was just so into the Rugby World Cup as well but the Six Nations the, the actual skill level has, has been pretty poor so hopefully it picks up over the next couple of weeks and we can um, all get behind it and you know if Ireland keep on going the way they're going then hopefully we'll be all very happy Irish men in, in a few weeks time Exactly we're, we're cantering along to a Grand Slam at this at this rate that, that skill level even adds to your point Stephen <laughs> Yeah, it it's it's been very frustrating, and I think you know people just that, that have been watching the, the Six Nations, they're like, oh, I can't really get into it this year. Yeah, I can't really get into it. And I'm like, well, what do you mean, like? And they're like, oh, it's, well, the games have been a bit rubbish, haven't they? And you know, the World Cup was just so good, and oh, you know that. Remember that Irish uh, quarter final and this uh, quarter final with South Africa. And like, I just can't get into it this year, and I'm like, well, the teams haven't really given us anything to get into because. You know, they've been pretty poor um, and the standard's been poor but as I say there's plenty of time and effort now to, to hopefully raise it up a couple of levels Absolutely we'll all catch fire in two weeks time when we host Wales and Aviva say live on RT television <laughs> so we'll all catch fire when it's on RT television Big time, big time Stephen Ferris thank you very much uh, for joining us gentlemen as always we're taking a short break and then we are going to chat hurling with Niall Moran and Alan Collier still standing by to chat football stay with us here on Game On 2FM <laughs> Now you're very welcome back to Game On as we chat hurling with Niall Moore and before we chat soccer with Alan Colley. Uh, Niall, thank you very much uh, for taking the call. Lots to get through in round two of uh, the National League. Where to begin? Let us begin uh, with Waterford, 116, Clare, 20 points because it's two weeks in a row now that we've seen some Clare squad players really kind of make impacts. Um, and I suppose Clare, top of uh, Division uh, 1A, are they just going about the league in, in perfect fashion, blooding the players through, such as Mounsey, Crotty, Meehan and so on, Niall? Yeah, obviously there over the last number of weeks we've seen a lot of new faces in the Clare team, uh, Shane. And so we'll come back to your first point, as where do you start? It was in a weekend yeah. filled with sport and, and you're looking at that, John, this weekend, I think the really National League really, really kicked off. But again, I you know I touched on yesterday, you just have to question the kind of compact nature of these games, how quickly they're coming. Um, you know, even from a spectator point of view, I suppose look, most people, the sports people's focus this weekend was probably on the Six Nations and we're going toe to toe with the National League. It, it seems really heavy. Um, I suppose I, I can only speak for myself, Shane. I don't know what you, yourself and Alan think, but like I just, I just think it's coming too hot, too heavy, too quickly. And um, even there, looking at across some of the matches, I think the number of kind of you know, soft muscle injuries that were common. We saw John, uh, Stephen Benno went off on a hamstring, Jake Morris went off on a hamstring. The guys who are so well-conditioned is, uh, again, uh, kind of my own sense was uh, too much, maybe too quickly. Uh, but, um, yeah, look, Clare seem to be, Clare and Tipperary so far seem to be the front runners in terms of form lines. And Brian Owen, if he was looking for the little 1% extra to kind of get over the line from last year, well, it seems that he's really he's really starting to get it. And um, look again, Patrick Crotty was a, another 
different kind of a player. I know he played over the last couple of years, but again, brought a different presence. Sean Rin built on his uh, last week's performance. So, uh, yeah, he'll be very, definitely very pleased. You, you mentioned perhaps it's, it's too much too soon. Now, obviously, we, we do have the week off, but across the board in Division 1A and, and, and 1B, there were very tight matches. I suppose the winning margin of Tip Galway was a bit more, but that was a bit of a wild match in terms of it was just chunks of scores for, for each team in, in a high-scoring match as well. Do you fear the league is going to peter off a bit, even though it does have that jeopardy with the, with the re- restructuring next year? So, again, I suppose, um, I don't know about the petering off, but I, I just think... Like the reality of this thing is, there's a week off this week, and like you're look, you're nearly hitting into February once the third round, or into March rather, once the third round is there, and then you're six weeks out from the championship. And look again, it's um, I, I think in terms of spectators, I just think there's so much on. The sport is saturated. I think we're losing it for you know for, for kids wanting to watch sport. I think rugby probably has the limelight there at the moment. And I just think the hurling year is so, so condensed. Um, do you know what I mean? I, I, I just find myself even going out to a game there yesterday. Like, it is winter conditions. It's not the most, um, it's not the most hurling-like conditions. But look, um, look, that won't bother the lads who are preparing. They, they have a day to hit for in the middle of April. I suppose one of the patterns that you might have seen over the weekend was just the, the general scores. Like, do you know what I mean? Scores probably dropped by maybe eight or nine uh, points, maybe, off what they might be a championship level. Like ordinarily, a championship time, you're saying, look, you're looking to hit 31, 32, 33 points. I suppose a lot of teams that won at the weekend, like Jordan, Clare had 20 points, Kilgany 21, Limerick 23. So with the exception of Tipperary, most of the win scores didn't go beyond 22 or 3 points. So is that down to new patterns of play? Are teams pushing up harder and are teams getting a little bit tighter? Or is that down to conditions? You know what I mean? I suppose it's up to everyone to make their own opinion mm. up on that. And coupled with elements of shadow boxing as well I'd imagine yeah elements of shadow boxing as well shadow boxing is going to have to end for a couple of teams there because we see there again at Waterford and Cork so I mean they have a big game coming next again whereby like whoever loses that may be destined to go into the, the lower division one next year or division two whatever you're going to rename it so mm. like and also the other thing is you have five league games and even as a player to get your form you need a couple of league games to, to get under you and so after this weekend, there's only three more if you don't qualify for the knockout stages. So to say that there's shadow boxing, I, I wouldn't so much say that. Yeah, a lot of big names are held back in reserve. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, TJ Reid has yet to see the light of day and there's guys like that who haven't seen the light of day. And I know in Limerick's case, they've been very fortunate that you know, the first two rounds of the league have given them the opportunity to keep going with a block of hard training. But the reality it is after like after the next round of the league you're, you're two games two competitive games away and you're coming in your championship so you will want to be finding a bit of form in yourself and I suppose that's where even looking at the Tipperary game Tipperary just looked to even though so they're still down a number of their you know, top forwards like Jason Ford didn't play Noah McGrath didn't play they just looked to be finding good little bit of momentum there there looked to be a freshness about them there looks to be an edge in them um, even like in the first half there they really took Galway asunder in the backs and one thing about Liam Cahill's teams that have been successful over the years is they're goal hungry and while Tip only got one they created multiple goal chances probably you could argue the only team of the weekend who really uh, went after goals and how they played like you know and so if you're looking for form lines going forward then that, that may be a fairly good form line like you know mm. You mentioned, well, I suppose I mentioned the Jeopardy and then you kind of backed it up with, with saying about Cork and Waterford meeting. It's two defeats from two for Cork now and Davy Fitz was, I think his comments, he was saying he was worried about a side second half slump. How concerned would you be if you were a, a Waterford fan or a Cork fan? 
Um, I, I don't know. I suppose I'd have to ask him other guys what they think in terms of style of play. But um, I don't know about you, Shane. But I just find Corker infuriating to watch. Um, do you know what I mean? As in just the, the the amount of mistakes, the amount of overplaying in the ball that they did against Kenny the last day. And in, in the first the first twenty minutes, they were pitiful in how they kind of defended, how they never tracked runners. Now, to their eternal credit, they turned it around after twenty minutes and they showed a bit of cut about them, and they went a little bit more direct. And I honestly, I, I know Cork were very successful in the naughty playing a particular style of game, and they were they were the, the kingpins at that style of game, but I, I just, I'm not quite sure that they have a style that kind of suits them at the moment, and I, you know what I mean, the reality of it is, like, Pat Hoyer, or Patrick Horgan got nine points and threes, kind of hand four, that's 13 out of 117 for two guys. Who are, who are deep into their careers it doesn't speak volumes about all these new 20s that are coming and um, I just I, I know that if you would hope that there would be a lot more in them there has to be a lot more in them but I think they might need to go back to the root and brass tacks of actually just kind of working harder maybe going a little bit more direct and as archaic as that might sound that might seem I, I just think they're playing themselves into trouble trying to be too finite in, in terms of their passes and things and uh, as I said to you I've they're just infuriating at times to watch because John and Cork have better hurlers than that. I mean, watching you see during the week, so I mean, you saw the potential in guys when they played a little bit more directly. Absolutely, so many narratives. Listen, no more. We're going to have to leave the conversation there, but really pre- appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, to chat. It should be a, an interesting um, league campaign, as I said, when the hurling resumes uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Game on football. But rounding out the show, Alan Colley is patiently standing across from me to chat football. We got through the President's Cup at the top of the show. Uh, let us chat Premier League. One match on this evening, Crystal Palace at uh, Chelsea. Uh, no team news in uh, as of yet uh, for that London derby. Where would you like to begin, Alan, I suppose? If a team wins 6-0, I suppose you have to have to start there, I suppose, um, even though Arsenal are third with Liverpool and Manchester City ahead of them. How much of a cl- complete performance was it for the Gunners? Yeah, they've been absolutely brilliant in the last two or three weeks, Shane. And um, I suppose I said a couple of weeks ago about I felt when the break came, it came at the right time for Arsenal because mm. obviously they just had a, had a little bit of a blip, which all it was, to be fair, the longer it might have went on, uh, had the season carried on, you would have been thinking it may be a crisis, but it was just a bit of a blip and we've seen that now since the response, since the break. It did come at the right time. They went away for some warm weather training, a bit of reset, if you like, and they've come back flying, absolutely flying. Uh, they've won four league games on the bounce, obviously beating Liverpool last week, follow it up with a difficult away game against West Ham, albeit West Ham are not they're having a, a, a bit of a, mm. a blip themselves at the moment so it probably wasn't as tough a game as what it may have been earlier in the season going away to West Ham but you still have to go on to win to win 6-0 it was phenomenal they were 4 up after 40 minutes um, and when you think as well Shane I suppose everybody is looking at City and rightly so I tipped Arsenal at the start Liverpool are right in the mix but Arsenal are bang there as well they really are they've the best defensive record in the league they've only conceded 22 goals they've scored 53 which is only 3 behind Man City when you think of obviously there with the firepower that they have so Arsenal even though for all the criticism they get that that they don't have a number 9 or that's the narrative that's created they're all still chipping in with the goals Saka has been a revelation all season as we know Um, and I just think the form that they're in at the moment and how convincing they're winning the matches it's given them great confidence they've, they look like a team with the bit between their teeth obviously in terms of the title race they've been there last year they just came up a little bit short that's why I felt that 
experience would stand him in good stead this year and he's strengthened and Declan Rice has been phenomenal since he's come in he's really solidified everything in the midfield and he's chipping in with the odd goal himself I probably would have celebrated <laughs> Of course this you would. Celebration rubbish. This the best. It's, it's the best feeling in the world scoring a goal. You go bananas. It's not like Declan Rice to not have loyalty. Yeah, anyway, no. In so. fairness, he's a, he, I do. I'm a big fan of his. He's a brilliant player, Shane. Um, and they're they're bang on track. As I say, Man City got their victory at the weekend. As we know, Liverpool got theirs. But I suppose out of the three protagonists for the league title, Arsenal were certainly the most impressive over the weekend. Yeah. What, what did you make of Liverpool's response? Because I know we were chatting on on Friday mm. about how they would respond, and also what you make of. of Queeving and go. Yeah, to be fair to Queeving, um, I don't think he has anything, he can't do anything in terms of the goal. It was a yeah. bullet header by Darrow Shea. Nice to see yeah, an Irish score. And I'm yeah. a big fan of Darrow Shea's. I really like Darrow Shea. I think he has a brilliant attitude. And I think even if Burnley get relegated, I still think um, teams may look at him potentially for the Premier League. But it was great to see him get on the score sheet. And Keevan Keller couldn't do anything with that. It yeah. was a, a powerful header. But I think he did okay in the game. And Liverpool's response, Shane it was so important that they just won yeah. and that could have been a potential banana skin I never felt it was but they made heavy weather of it especially when Burnley equalised and we all know Burnley are fighting for their lives even though they're not a team that go out with the intention of battling and fighting and trying to stifle the opposition the, the manager company wants to play an open attractive game which I think has them in the mess that they're in mm. I think you should be adapting to certain games especially if you're going away to Anfield you're, you don't take them on and go toe to toe with Liverpool be a bit I more pragmatic absolutely in games like that Fair enough if he wants to go toe-to-toe with Luton and Sheffield United and teams around him but you don't go to Anfield and try and take them on in a game and be as open so they made heavy weather of it Liverpool but they, they ran a comfortable winners in the end and it was just important that they got back on track Yeah, How big a victory um, was uh, Manchester United's 2-1 win over uh, Aston Villa because you know they're suddenly kind of looking up the table now yeah and we mentioned on, on Saturday and the way I left it with you Shane was it would give us because I felt it was the toughest opposition that, yeah. had, that had played in the last three or four weeks and especially um, in those victories that they've picked up obviously the four including that one yesterday and the ones prior to that as well I felt out of those games there were probably games that they should win whereas going up against Aston Villa away from home this was going to be their toughest test and I felt the way I left it which it was it would give us a clear indication of just where we are it gave me no indication whatsoever Shane <laughs> because they played exactly like they've done in the last few weeks and they don't control games they always look as though very hectic and their second best Villa were the better team dominating possession creating chances but yet they play in moments and those moments are big at the moment and those moments are going in the likes of Hoyland getting his chance scores that yeah. wasn't happening earlier in the season and to be fair to McTominay who kind of he's maligned at times but I always felt in relation to Man United closing the gap on the top three that we've just discussed I never felt he was the type of player that was going to close the gap you need a better quality midfield player but I always said there was room for him in the squad for the likes of what we've seen yesterday or for cup matches or, mm-hmm. um, and you need players like that with good attitude good squad players will will always be reliable be dependable and he chips in with goals to be fair and that was a massive goal yesterday and it was a great goal a great finish yeah. brilliant cross by Dallow so the road are look at time Shane but I think to be fair to them and, and I've been very hard on them over the course of the season rightly so as well because of how poor they've been but they are all of a sudden looking up the table a little bit and, yeah. and slightly turning a corner but if Villa were the, if Villa were the better team um, now listen I know Onana had a, a decent decent game he made a, made a, few, a couple of saves but does the 
blame follow Unai Emery in terms of not having a plan B in terms of bringing off Leon Bailey Massive. Like, that's where the blame lies Ronald Lindahoff unbelievable Shane Life. I couldn't believe it it was the best thing to happen Man United all afternoon was Leon Bailey going off because when Shaw was playing quite well and Shaw was a good player but as soon as Lindelof came on and, and putting him left full on the same side as Maguire as well that they're already weak on I couldn't believe it when he took Bailey off and he was getting so much joy as well down that side then you brought on obviously Diaby would have been something similar but I would have kept Bailey on the pitch and had Diaby running at them hmm. Ollie Watkins is one that frustrates the life out of me Shane people are suggesting that Ollie Watkins can close the gap and become England's number 9 you see the amount of chances he misses and again the same and they created a brilliant chance in the first half I think it was McGinn slid the ball through to him delays and delays gives Anana time to come out and close the angle and then in the second half as well he, he could put it anywhere bar straight at the goalkeeper and he scores and he's just not clinical enough I know he has scored plenty of goals but he misses so many chances and I think that's been a problem in recent weeks for Aston Villa whereas those chances were going in earlier in the season they're not going in now they're still ahead of Manchester United. Yeah, and they're uh, having the a great season, by, by Shane, but seconds. they've just hit a bit five, of a blip. Five points, I should say, but yeah. Yeah, no, listen, it is a small blip, but that, that uh, was a big win for Manchester United. Um, elsewhere, Newcastle got over the line away to Nottingham Forest, so they're in seventh. Spurs, uh, massive Spurs, win. Yeah, what, what, what got Spurs over the line against Brighton? It was a massive win, Shane, and, and when you think of the couple of times that they've been pegged back themselves, particularly last week against Everton, an injury time goal, which is an absolute sickener, for them to get beyond the right end of that result at the weekend and especially when you see how tight it is because United as we said are looking up now so they're only five points off Phyllis six points off Spurs it was massive that Spurs got that victory and just maintained that position where they are um, and keeping themselves a point above Villa I still think they're in prime position to finish in that fourth place I would Spurs put, are yeah I think they are out of the three Um but the fact that United are all of a sudden picking up a few results, that would certainly have Spurs looking over their shoulder. But I still think Spurs are in the prime position for that. OK. Uh, and Manchester City still revving up for a double treble. Two nil winners over Everton. Listen, we have less than a minute left in the show. I do want to mention AFCON because it's just a great story. Sebastian Aller was the hero for Ivory Coast. And his journey um, was brilliant. And what a finish as well. The yeah. technique of, of getting your toe on the end of that. Absolutely superb, Shane. Yeah, and the story itself, as you said, to think what he's come through. And obviously... When when he came back for Dortmund last year and got his first goal and now mm. to score the winner for your country in the African Cup of Nations on home soil as well it was absolutely unbelievable because I think from looking at it and especially with the path through to the finals everybody had Nigeria down as yeah. favourites but they played so well and especially falling a goal behind as well to show the character to come back and Kessie who got the first goal who's who's played really well in the competition mm. as well but for Haller to pop up with the winning goal um, off the back of what he's been through absolutely phenomenal yeah. story just 13 months on from his return to football from testicular cancer brilliant so stuff really really brilliant listen Alan thank you as always uh, pleasure chatting that is all we have time for big thanks to Ronan Lawler and Laura Lee, L- Ronan Lawler and Laura Lee Davis for working on this evening's show Better De Silva is up next uh, from all of the Game On team it is bye for now but first we're going to check in with the news desk and then it is all yours Better.